The greatest stories are the ones that have fantastic twists in the middle or at the end. There's a, a film that was made earlier this year by a director. His name is M. Night Shyamalan. And uh, he's kind of known for you know, writing stories at these great twists. So he does this film, and uh, it's got this great twist. And the twist at the end connects to a film that he did 17 years ago. Can you believe that? And so for those of us who follow the genre and follow the, 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 his, his style... You know, the end of the movie comes and the twist comes and we all go, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. He tied it to this other movie 17 years ago. Um, but probably the, the, the greatest twist that he, he had done, I think arguably of all of the films that he did, was a movie that he did back in 1999 called The Sixth Sense. Now, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to spoil the end of it. And it's your fault if you haven't seen it. The, the lesson here is carve more time out of your schedule to see iconic movies, okay? You had 18 years to see it. If you haven't seen it by now, too bad, right? So in the sixth sense, you've got this, this little boy who says that he's seen ghosts, and, and you've got this uh, child psychologist who's, you know, meeting, meeting with this young boy. And the twist at the end of the movie is that it's the child psychologist who's dead. And when it, when it unpacks, and you go back and you watch the film again, you realize in every single scene that he's in, you know, nobody's actually really directly talking to him. He's kind of, the way that they cut the film, it was genius. And in every scene, uh, all of a sudden, you, you can't not see it. Once you go back and you go, oh my goodness, I can't believe how this whole thing wove together. And uh, every, every, everything worked out in this way that we just, we didn't see it coming. And I need you to know that the scriptures, the, all, the whole Bible is, is like that amplified in a radical way where Jesus said that everything was about him, but nobody saw it coming. It was the ultimate twist that the God of the universe would clothe himself in the clay of creation and then come and be the underdog and die and be the one that would save us from our sin. Jesus said in John uh, chapter 5 to the Pharisees, uh, he said, you look to the scriptures thinking that in them you have life. They testify of me. In other words, you're looking for this system of salvation, but I'm it. Nobody saw that coming. Luke 24, the Emmaus Road, after the resurrection, Jesus is walking with the disciples and he's, and he's taking them through the, the, all the books of Moses and the Psalms and, the, and uh, the prophets. And he's saying, it's, all of it is about me. And it's like after the resurrection, they just looked back at this grand twist, the meta-arc of redemption. This is story that unpacked. It was amazing. Well, contrary to popular belief, God does not need anything from us. And that meta-arc that I just explained, everything about Jesus and what he came to do reveals that. God doesn't need anything from us. God loves us. He saved us because he wants to be with us. And when you think about it, what is it exactly that you can give to the one who, when he spoke, the cosmos came into existence? What are we really offering him? I mean, what are we really adding to him? The answer is nothing. The grand story of all scripture is the great grace of God for us that we come in week in, week out, and we, and we celebrate. And 500 years ago, this Tuesday coming, the Reformation broke out. And it broke out because the church got off the rails in terms of the goodness of God, the goodness of the gospel. In fact, they erased the good news altogether, and they made it very bad news by saying that Jesus got something started that you complete, which is horrifying news. And so the Reformation broke out. A friend of mine, his name is Chad Bird, and he's a Lutheran author, and he, he, and he said it this way as he reflects back. He says, 
The Reformation is not about 95 theses nailed to a door. It was about recovering the message of one man nailed to a cross. And so as we've been looking at church history these last five weeks, we've been touching on it because I think it's valuable to look back at the sins of the past so that we don't commit them again and puff our chests out and say, those silly people, you know, we would never do these things and abandon the grace of Jesus. But recognize that we're capable of doing it. And losing, losing the goodness of the gospel and losing the, the, you know, the joy of our, our salvation. And so we've been going through these five solas, sola scriptura, which is the scripture alone tells us that, God, that Jesus Christ is enough. Sola gratia, which is grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone, apart from all of our works, apart from our contribution. It's totally scandalous because there's no other system that works that way. No worldview works that way. Your relationships don't work that way. Other religions don't work that way. In everything that we can conceive, we have to bring a contribution. But in the gospel, Christ is enough. He's not just necessary, he's enough. And so we come to, uh, uh, last week we talked about solus Christus, Christ alone. And this week is that, that the, the, the final you know, teaching during the Reformation that had kind of brought everybody back, it culminated in this, which is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And today's reading is from Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 28 to 39. And it's like the exclamation point, I think. There's many texts that we could go to, but this is one that just puts an exclamation point on how all of the glory goes to God alone and why you and I get to come on Sundays and actually rest is something that's finished for us and have our souls rejuvenated. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And from those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep of the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Now, Christian faith invites us into a life of both liberating confidence and awestruck humility Confidence because we know that God accepts us on the base of Christ's grace. And humility because we know that we didn't do anything to deserve Christ's grace. Um, It's like when you put on sunglasses, you see everything through a particular lens. And what Paul is trying to do and what I hope to do this morning through these, as we unpack these scriptures, is to 
put on that gospel lens so that we begin to see the day-to-day, everything you have to deal with tomorrow, when Monday hits, that we begin to see the day-to-day in light of the lens of this gospel, this goodness, the glory of God, in light of what he has done, uh, in light of this finished work. Because as we go through this passage, what we find is that our, our souls are actually being invited into resting in the glory of God alone. And it changes how we see everything else in this life. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. The gospel is the liberating truth that drives your worship, drives you to work, drives you to school, drives your life. The glory of God. Now in verse 28, Paul says, all things work together for good, right? To those that are called according to his purpose. This is not silver lining theology. This is not, don't worry, whatever you're going through, it's going to turn around and be good. He is not saying that. Consider his audience, the Romans, okay? Think of the church in Rome. What was their life like? History teaches us, not great. So what is Paul doing here? Why does Paul say all things are working together for good? What are the implications of this? They're radical, they're awesome, right? The church, the church didn't, didn't read this and Paul didn't intend it to mean whatever you're going through, it's just gonna, there's a silver lining, it turns out okay, because there was this guy named Nero, remember him? And there was another guy named Domitian, and another guy named Diocletian, and by 303 uh, AD, you know, the, the entire Christian church was being persecuted, so Rome would have looked at their life and looked at everything going on, and how Nero was riding around his chariot, burning Christians on the lawn for fun. These things, are, this is Roman antiquity, uh, and they would have looked at, looked at all things work together for good and looked at their life and been like, just burn the letter, this is crazy, this guy didn't know what he's talking about. What is Paul getting at here? This isn't some sort of a cliche. This is a comforting word that is enabling the church hearts to transcend tragedy, transcend hardship. This is a word of comfort that invites us out of worry, invites us out of anxiety, because it reminds us that our lives are not in the grip of fate. Our lives are in the grip of God. The universe is not a mechanical mechanism that is being... you know, run by blind chance. But rather the universe has been created by our loving Father and we are His. And Paul is saying, all things are going to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. We're going to get to what His purpose is in a minute. But that through trials and hardships and sufferings and devastations that aren't good at all, none of those things that you're going through in your life can ruin God's purpose for you. Nothing going on in your family, nothing going on in your relationships, nothing going on in your body, no phone call from a doctor, nothing going on in the economy, nothing going on uh, economically or nationally, nothing can ruin God's purpose for you. Nothing. God rules over everything, and he is therefore using absolutely everything to reform our hearts so that we are not constantly held hostage by circumstances. Go back to Rome, go back to that first century church. They were living in a condition that their their heart would have been gripped by the circumstances of being crushed under the threat of Rome. And Paul was giving them a word to say, there's nothing actually could ever happen to you that can take away the hope that God has put given to you uh, through the gospel. And so his whole point here is soul-strengthening grace. Because there's nothing more superficial, there's nothing more fragile than happiness that's hinged to circumstance. If if your happiness is ultimately hinged to circumstance, your happiness is always being threatened. Threatened by your age, threatened by the economy, threatened by the toxins in the air that we're breathing every day. Constantly threatened. 
So Paul is trying to pull the church out of that and us by extension is pulling us out of that so that what he is saying is there is nothing more powerful than having peace in your soul in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of everything hitting the fan and nothing working out. The hope of the gospel enables us to face both triumph or tragedy without being defined by triumph or tragedy or having the peace in our hearts hinging on triumph or tragedy, but rather this radical peace that carries us through triumph and tragedy. In verse 29, Paul tells us what the purpose of God is. He says, all things are going to work together for good, who those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, if we stop there, which most of most of us, I think, in all of our lives have quoted at least that much of the verse. Maybe you're new to the Bible and you're new to the scriptures, and so this is very new for you. But even if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christian faith and you're not a Christian, you've probably heard the concept of the purpose of God or the plan of God or God has a plan. You've probably heard that kind of language. Well, what is it exactly? I mean, what is the plan of God? The Christians, do we kneel down and we pray and then we hear a little whisper in our voice and it says, buy the blue shirt, not the red one? Is that how we live our life? Is that hearing the plan of God? It isn't at all. Paul says in verse 29 what the purpose is. This is the purpose. God's plan. God's all, the, the ultimate game. This is glory to God. We like to th- shrink God down. And be like, here's what I'm up to. Here's what's going on in my life. And if, if God could just make this thing work out, that would be fantastic. But we have been swept up into a massive redemptive plan. That is eternal. And God's like, no, the glory's to me. I created you, you're, you're for me, and I've rescued you into this glorious, eternal trajectory. What is it? When you look at verse 29, and God's purpose is to be conformed to the likeness of his son. It's right there in black and white. The purpose of God is not a vocation. It's a condition to conform us into the purpose of his son. That's very, very liberating. If you're a student in university and you're doing studies and you're trying to navigate, can I go, should I go down this path or that one? You know, hundreds of years ago, trying to figure out what to do with your life vocationally wasn't difficult. You know, it's like, what do your parents do? You do that. But today, you go into a program at university or college or you're in high school and you're trying to figure out your prerequisites, students, and it's like, I could do that, I could do that, I could do that, I could do that. This path takes me there, 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 there. If you think that the purpose and the plan of God for your life is a vocation, you're going to be crippled. You're going to be the, 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 that old phrase, you know, paralysis by analysis, that whole thing. But the, but the plan and the purpose of God is to conform us into the image of his son. It's to conform our hearts. It's uh, this profound condition of being united to Christ. So God's purpose for your life is something that you're actually standing in right now. That you being uh, saved and you coming into his grace, these, this, this is the purposes of God, to reform our hearts. So what happens now, what, if you connect verses 28 and 29 together, is that really what God is up to is he is up to reshaping our hearts for that purpose. And God uses the good and the bad and the super ugly to do that. He, God isn't so small that he can only use things that are like him. God is so great. God uses circumstances and things that are nothing like him. To still reform our hearts to his purpose. Which is Paul's whole point to Rome. You can be in a place of glorious blessing and enjoying the goodness of God. And you can enjoy health and you can enjoy wealth and you can enjoy these things. And and you can glorify God for those things. But if it all crashes and burns. If it all goes down. If we lose everything. Paul is saying. The purposes of God in that condition can still be accomplished in your heart. 
and in your life. There is a radical strength there. There is a radical peace there that enables us to transcend circumstance. Otherwise, we've reduced Christian faith. We've reduced the glory of the gospel. We've reduced glory to God to like a Christian form of karma. And so then every time something goes bad in our life, we're like, okay, okay, okay. This is not good. This is not God's plan. This is not God's purpose. What buttons do I need to push? What levers should I be pulling? What, maybe I'm, what am I not doing enough of? What do I need to do more? Because, oh no, there's this terrible thing happening in my life. Don't, we don't reduce the purpose of God to the circumstance itself. God uses all of it. That isn't to say that our sin can't bring tragedy and circumstance. Of course it can. The consequence of our sin, of course, can do that. But the point what Paul is making here is even our sin, even our backsliding, even our failure to you know, love God and love our neighbor, even our failure in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, all that failure that you and I weave in and out of in our life, God uses even that to accomplish his purpose. Think of how bad the news would be if my message to you this morning was, if you sin and you backslide and you don't love your neighbor and you don't you know, walk according to the word of God and you don't allow God's life to guide your life, then you're out of the purpose of God. Every time you sin, you're out of God's purpose. And then every time you repent and you get your life back on track, you're back in God's purpose. Can you imagine? Think of how crippling that would be. I'm out, now I'm in. Okay, now I'm out again, now I'm in. Hey, how was your life this week? How was your prayer life this week? How much Bible did you read this week? Well, you know you could have done more, right? You're out, you're in. You're out, you're in. You're out, you're in. You're guilty, you're burdened. Do you see this? What Christ has done for you was sufficient, which means the glory is all to God because you've been brought into an irreversible condition. Now you're living from that freedom to the glory of God. God defines his purpose as this. In 1974, the Boston Herald... uh, did this fictional article on this exchange between Michelangelo, the great sculptor, and this, this fan of Michelangelo. It's not, this didn't really happen, but it was a great, it was a great exchange that, that uh, was written. And the fan says, how did you create this incredible sculpture of David? And Michelangelo says, well, I just took this chunk of marble and I chipped away everything that didn't look like David. That's a picture of what God is doing in all of us, church. This is his purposes in verse 29. To be conformed to the image of a son. There's things in your life and mine, your heart and mine, that are nothing like Jesus. And over the course of our life, he, by his great grace, the same grace that saved us, is chipping those things away. It won't be perfected in this life ever. We'll struggle with our sin. Of course we will. We all will. But the good news of the gospel is we're living from a position of that being done. And our life not hanging in the balance on the basis of, of that being done done by us. In verse 30, Paul lists five things that God, that God did. You look at verse 30, there's five things that God did that drives our passion for worship, that drives the glory of God. Five things God did that have nothing to do with you. I'm sorry, they have everything to do with you, my apologies, but they're not driven by you or done by you. Look at the five verbs Paul gives. He's trying to encourage the church. Guys, He says, guys, everything is going to work out according to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's not a vocation. It's a condition. And look at what God did. And then then Paul goes, and he launches these five verbal uh, rockets for the church to consider. And here they are. He says, God foreknew you. To foreknow you, it could also be translated to forelove you. It means God set his love on you. God did that. He foreknew you. It says that he did that in a personal way. It says he predestined you. 
To be predestined means God didn't wait and say, to say, okay, let's just see how they turn out. Let's see how good they are. Let's just wait and see what they do with this good news. I'm going to give them the good news of Jesus. I'm going to give them the good news. But let's just wait and see what they do. Let's see how they respond to it. How moral are they? How generous are they? How willing are they to get out of their own selfishness and love their neighbor? How willing to sacrifice are they? Are they willing to sacrifice their time? Are they willing to sacrifice their finances for those who are less for it? Like, let's just wait and see what they do with this. No. He did not wait and see. He predestined. Which means he decided your horizon ahead of time to love you, apart from you, in spite of you. That's what it means. The Greek word for predestined is uh, prehorizdo. Horizdo is where we get the word horizon from. So what what the text is saying is God determined your horizon and then he just set out for it. I'm going to love you. I'm going to give my grace to you. It says that he foreloved us. It says that he predestined us. Then he goes on to this other, ver- this other verb, which is to call. He says he called. Those that he predestined, he called. To call you means to awaken your heart. He calls you so that you come. Right? When you call a small child, when a small child is running and you say, and you call their name. If I, if, when my kids were young, if I said, Rebecca! And Rebecca stopped and turned and came towards her dad. I have awakened her attention. To her father. This is what the calling of God is. He's called our hearts by his gospel. Right? All through the Bible it teaches us we don't want God. We want to be God. We all live to be God. But God called us. He caught our attention. He got our attention by his great grace. Which is why all of us have stories of responding to the gospel. Praying. Some of you walked to the front of a church. Some place and prayed. Or you responded in some service. Or you're like listening here. You're sitting here today. Providentially, God has brought you here. You're listening to this gospel of God's grace and love for you. And you come to believe it. You say, no, yes, I do believe in Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. And when you come to that place, it's because he called you. This great gift of his grace. Then it says he justified you. To be justified is to be, be declared righteous. Jesus was actually righteous. You and I are declared righteous. We're not actually righteous. Christians aren't actually righteous. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're like, well, the thing that confuses me about Christians is, uh, you know, they don't seem to act any better than anybody else. That may be true. Some of the Christians you know, precisely because they're in this journey of having everything chipped away from them that isn't like Jesus, and we're all in varying degrees of that. The big word for that is sanctification, right? Like, we're all in that journey of that. And no Christian is sinless. We've been justified, which means Christ was actually righteous, and we are now declared righteous because we're with him. It's not on the basis of us. Look at, these are all past tense words that Paul uses. None of these words are pending. He's like, it's done, done, done. But here's the big one. I'm going to tell you, this is crazy. The last verb he uses here, if you look at it, it's glorified. Past tense, glorified. If you're new to the Bible or you're new to the scriptures, glorified, every time the Bible talks about glorification, it's talking about the resurrection. It's talking about the, what's being restored. When Jesus Christ was glorified, it came after his suffering. He suffered and he died in our place on the cross, and then he was glorified. The whole Bible is shaped like a U, okay? Everything was created in perfection. Our sin brought damnation. God promised redemption. In the end, restoration. It's like a big U. But the glorification is at the end, though. None of us are glorified now because we all sin. None of us are glorified now because we're all going to die. We're made of dirt, and one day we're all going back there. But Paul says glorified, and he uses the past tense because what he's saying is... The promise is as good as done. 
If you're in Christ and called according to his purpose, by grace and through faith in Christ alone, it's done. The glorification is coming. It's not pending. This is why it's good news. This is why Sunday is a celebration. This is precisely why we live to God's glory. This is an unbreakable chain. Look at all these verbs. It's an unbreakable chain of acts that God does, that God did, that we're not contributing to. The Father planned it. The Son accomplished it. The Spirit is now applying it. God does all the work, so God gets all the glory. Glory to God alone. And you say, well, I don't know, that doesn't sound right. Aren't, aren't Christians supposed to do work? Sure. But not, to, not for God. It, if you look at, follow Paul's logic, it's already done. God doesn't need our good works. Our neighbor does. So all the good works that we do are not earning. It's just simply imitating. When you look at verse 31, Paul says, what is our response to all this? And then he goes ahead and he explains it. Augustine uh, was one of the church fathers, and he, and he said this. He said, you don't honor a fountain by throwing water into the fountain. You honor a fountain by drinking from the fountain. We can't add to God. You don't stand in, the, in front of the ocean like a small child and, and flick teaspoons of water into the ocean and add to the you, he's Augustine saying, you drink from this fountain. You receive from it. How do we glorify God? If you, if, all you kids that are in the service today, if you were given a new bike, what a great gift. You're like, yes, new bike. And the way that you thank the giver for the new bike, it looks two different ways, doesn't it? One of the ways that you glorify the giver is you hug their legs and you say, thank you, oh, this is so awesome. That's one way you glorify them. But if you just day after day after day after day after day just stand there going, thank you, oh, thank you so much, you're, you're, you're not really fully glorifying the giver. In fact, the giver is going to at some point say, go on, enjoy it. Go ride the bike. Go enjoy the gift. Which is where this text is going. Because the way that we glorify God looks like gathering and hugging his legs and saying, thank you, which is Sunday morning. We sing the gospel into one another's hearts and we remember the grace. We go to God's word and we sit underneath the scriptures as Christ is preached and as we go through and we follow the gospel logic and we celebrate in our hearts and we say, thank you, right? And we give of our finances and our time to build this church so that long after all of us are gone, Jesus is being preached. Long after I'm out of here, Jesus is still preached. That's our way of saying, thank you. But then we leave. And we go into the city, and we're like that little child riding the bike. And through our education and our vocation and our gifts and our recreation and our relationships, we glorify God in everything that we're doing by faith. That's our way of saying thank you. Living as those who are at rest in God and glorifying Him in the city. And so now we're making dinner by faith, and we're coaching hockey by faith, and we're going to work by faith. And we're enjoying our families by faith. And we're enjoying recreation by faith. And we're raising our children by faith. And we're sitting around the family table by faith. And we go and we reach out to our neighbor and we do justice and mercy in the city by faith. And we bring the glory of God in the way that is reforming our hearts and our minds to conform them to the image of His Son. And we bring that into the public square by faith. And the way that we choose to do our business by faith and relate to our neighbors by faith. All for the glory of God. We're riding the bike. 
We're enjoying the gift. We're glorifying, we're glorifying him. Luther uh, famously said during the time of the Reformation that the Christian does not do his Christian duty by putting little crosses on shoes if he's a shoemaker. The, sho- the Christian shoemaker does his duty by making great shoes, right? That's us. That's how we glorify God. We glorify him on Sundays with our worship. It's primary. That's why he commands us to come and to rest, right? Sunday isn't a me day. We don't take it or leave it. We come and gather so that his word can infuse our hearts so that formation can happen. And then we go into the city and we enjoy the goodness of his great grace and his great gospel. He's the giver of the gift. And so that's how we build the church and bless the city by, with hearts of thankfulness for the gift. And that glorifies the giver. Johann Sebastian Bach was a fantastic uh, composer, one of the greatest composers in all history. And he, and, and he would sign every piece of music that he wrote, SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, Glory to God Alone. He signed all his music like that, not just the Christian hymns, all of it. There was no distinction for Johann because he understood this concept of this gospel of what God has done and of what Christ has done and how now we live in the city. It's like it's all for the glory of God. We don't put up funny, funny uh, distinctions between uh, Christian and secular. I mean, how do you change a tire like a Christian exactly? I mean, it's just, it's all the way that we live our life is to the glory of God, right? Infusing Paul says, uh, Paul unpacks us, the goodness of all this. He says in verse 32, God has graciously given us all things, right? We don't need to worry about our needs. That liberates us with our time and how we think think about our money. Verses 33 and 34, Paul does this barrage of questions. He says, who can bring any charge to God's elect? Who's going to condemn you? You don't need to live with a sense of guilt, a sense of remorse. All of your, the guilt of your sin has been removed by Christ and the grip of your sin is being removed by the spirit of Christ. And then in verse 35, Paul asks this, the, the culminating question, who can separate you from Christ's love? And the answer is nobody and nothing. Can troubles or persecution or a call from the doctor saying that our, our bodies have been ridden with disease, discrimination on our faith, economic crash, the threat of World War III over Twitter. <laughs> I mean, all these things. What, what can separate us? Relationship breakdowns, the devastation of death itself, our common enemy that's going to claim all of us one day. Can that separate us from the love of Christ? No. All of these things affect us. All of these things are real. But no, the worst conceivable circumstances and trials and tragedies cannot do it. And so what Paul is doing is he's re-envisioning the church, how they live day to day. I used to coach football in the city, and there was this little guy... And he was crying one day before one of the games, and he was really nervous. He'd never played football before, and he's got all his equipment on. And he's standing there, and he's going, I'm afraid I'm going to get hurt. And I was hitting him on the shoulder pads, and I was saying, bang, did that hurt? No. Bang, did that hurt? No. And I hit him in the helmet. Bang, did that hurt? No. See, come on, you're going to be okay. You're going to be great. Now, I know that when he goes on the field, he's going to get hit every 24 seconds, because that's how football works. Every 24 seconds, somebody hits you. I know that, but I'm trying to get him to reimagine going in there. And so I'm hitting him on the shoulder pads, and I'm hitting him in the helmet. I realized behind me what that looked like. I was like, oh, my, probably looked terrible from the other side of the field. There's this coach. But I was trying to encourage him. You can go in there. You're going to survive this. Paul's barrage of questions is that exact thing. Come on. 
reimagine and re-envision how you're going through the, the frustration and the worry and the anxiety and the trial of life. None of those things are going to be gone. But yet there's a pervasive peace and a joy that is available to us uh, in it and through it. And all of our hope, this whole passage, is bringing us to the source of unwavering and infallible confidence. Not the strength of your grip on God, but the strength of God's grip on you. Because the gospel, Jesus Christ's perfect life that he lived that you could never live, and you're not going to live it this week. Jesus Christ's atoning death, which means he took all of your sin and he made you stand, you're standing right with God that he has given to you. And his resurrection, his divine resurrection, his bodily resurrection, giving us the hope as Christians that death itself will not claim us. We are loved with a love that death itself cannot steal. That great hope is what changes us, is what infuses us. That liberating truth drives our worship and it drives us to work and it drives us to school and it drives our life. Glory to God alone. Let's pray.